one of our family members to death. Uh, Shirley Johnson has passed away this morning just before 8 o'clock. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Uh, Janie, thank you. And I could go on down the list. I just specifically think of Janie because at a time, I think, when some perhaps were growing weary and well-doing, Janie helped us get back on track. And so, thank you. Thank you, Janie. And thanks so many of you who came alongside of Shirley, who loved her, shared the gospel with her again and again, just a reminder of the hope that she had. She believed. She believed. And even as I sat with her last, just to hear some of her regrets, she just started sharing some of her regrets that she wished she had started so much earlier in her life. Felt like so much of her life was wasted not running hard after Christ. And, but to be able to share these truths with her, the truths that Kyle has prayed and shared with us in the beginning and shared with us in the membership class this morning that we've sung about, like to be able to sit there when somebody is feeling the weight of regret and shame and to tell her that there is none in Christ. Right? And, and even like... Lyndall, you're sharing with us, you know, to look at her hands, to know that the gift she has, and that now she's with Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's continue to pray for her family, and we will keep you posted on those funeral arrangements. So be looking at your email, please, if you would. Now, usually... Uh, I'm up here by like 11.05, all right, and it's 11.16. It's going to be a longer service today. You'll be out so you can watch the Super Bowl, so don't worry about that, all right. Let's begin by reading the text that's in front of us, and you will see, I think, and, and pray that we have a weighty thing in front of us this morning, and it's important we take our time with it. Beginning in chapter 7 of verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 7. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. So we begin this morning, and I just want to put in front of you a rhetorical question so you can process this scripture prayerfully. It will challenge you to process what is before us in light of Christ. How are you going to hear this word this morning? Are you ready, as it said to us in chapter 5, verse 8, are you ready this morning to feed on sincere and pure devotion? Are you going to receive this word like that? Right? Because as it says there in chapter 5, if you're feasting on malice, right, you won't hear the word, or you'll hear the word if you're feasting on malice, you'll hear the word in this text this morning, and you will use it against your spouse. 
You'll, you'll, if you're feasting on malice and not sincere and pure devotion that Paul just got finished talking to us about, you will use this text instead as, as permission to march forward with your selfish agenda. Right? This text, in fact, has been used by men in the church to ensure they are served by their spouse. This text has been used to demand from their, their wives with, with Bible in hand. And I want to say right, at the, right up front is that to do so isn't Christian. You can have your Bible, doesn't mean you're acting like a Christian. Okay? Right? To do so contradicts Jesus' call to carry our cross. Right? To use this as a text to demand for your selfish agenda contradicts God's directive to us in Philippians 2 where we are told very clearly, humble yourself and consider others more important than yourself. Right, Everyone should look not to his own interest but rather to the interest of others. This is God's directive for us on how we are to, right here in Philippians 2, that's God's directive for us on how we are to live generally, right, in terms of other people, how we're to treat other people, right, even those you don't know very well in the church, right? And so if you're supposed to live that way, as Philippians 2 tells us, to, to not consider your own interest but the interest of others, how much more do you think that ought to apply to your own spouse, Right? So let's commit from the get-go that we aren't going to be one of those men that use this passage as a demand to be served. Okay? So we look, verse 1, now in response to the matters I wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Right? And there's been a lot of debate as to what this means. In fact, you can see that debate play out in different ways. Some of your translations, you see it if you compare one translation to another. In summary, what they had written, what the church, the Corinthian church had written, that you see there right from the beginning there in verse 1, that they had written Paul previously, right? And as you're, we're looking at that, it seems to be that the statement, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, is a summary of what Paul had written to them previously. And some believe, right, that that statement, as we try to interpret that statement, one interpretation or a couple different interpretations believe that this is reflective of those who would be anti-sex, right? Others believe it is reflective of those who would see this as anti-marriage. And so some of your translations say even it is good for a man not to marry. I think neither is the case. I think if you look at the NAS translation, the New American Standard, it gives a more literal translation. It says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that touch, if you begin to study that, you look at there, that touch, this is a sexual euphemism uh, to touch a woman, is applied when a man is acting on sexual passions for the, for the sake of pleasure or sexual arousal. And in the context of the Corinthian church, the concern, as we saw last week, is what? It's sexual immorality. And so the church is rightfully very concerned when they write to Paul about this. They're very concerned about the types of sexual relationships and attitudes and motivations the church members are having towards sex. And so I think that makes uh, the best, most readable translation actually would arguably, I think, be found in the CSB, which states what we have already read, and that is this, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. And so we see that in the city of Corinth, the view and the attitude uh, towards sex, you see that in chapter 6, verse 13, look there, where it says what? It says this statement. This was a kind of a known statement, and it said, food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And that, that phrase is in reference to sex. And what they're saying is that it doesn't matter how we eat or what we eat, just, just satisfy that sexual desire, however you please. And you know, if you think about that, this is a similar attitude that I think has been held and have seen held by Christian psychologists who have argued, for example, masturbating and pornography is okay. Well, you have this appetite, 
and it's safe to satisfy that appetite in these ways, much better than sleeping around with other people and on and on. So you maybe have heard some of those types of arguments. But there in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, they would satisfy their their appetite with individuals other than their spouse. It was common and accepted to look outside the home for sexual pleasure. It was just seen as a basic human need, like it says in that statement, like feeding your stomach. Just gratify the appetite with the object. And the Corinthian church is responding to the sexual immorality and writing to Paul saying, it is not good to use a woman or any person to meet a man's hunger for sexual gratification. That's what the Corinthian church was writing to Paul about. And so then we're given instruction out of that context. Right, bringing us to verse 2. And to that, Paul says, but, which is interesting. You're like, oh, that sounds right and good. And they wrote to Paul about that. But then Paul comes in and says, but, because of sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So what we see here in our first point, right there, again, on the back of the bulletin, if you're taking notes... And let me warn you, it appears to be a very low view of the purpose of marriage, of a purpose of marriage, and it's this, it provides sexual release. Man, that sounds like a pretty low view of a purpose of marriage, but I think that is what we see here. Paul is saying, hey, I understand you're concerned about improper motivations and improper sexual relationships, but a husband and wife are to give themselves to one another. Why? Well, in part, to satisfy these basic desires, right? All the perversion and, and sexual uh, pleasure that was being had there in Corinth was outside of this context. In fact, at, at, that time, at this time, even in Rome, the predominant view was that procreation was the reason for marriage. Right? And yet, yet, interestingly, Paul doesn't even mention that here in our text. Why? Well, because... What needed address is that marriage was a place, right, not just for procreation, but for mutual sexual satisfaction, right? And you think of it, you think, man, what a need for them to, Paul to clarify this because of all the sexual immorality and all the temptations that was going on out there. And Paul is clarifying that God's designed marriage, God designed marriage as a place to fulfill, and put whatever word you want in there, right? But God designed marriage as a place to fulfill erotic, stimulating, sensual desires. Say, why do you say it like that? Well, that's how Paul, I think, is saying it. He's saying, hey, the culture that you're around is lying. And they're saying you fulfill those sensual, like, desires outside of the context of marriage. And so he's very clear that's not the case. Right? You don't find it outside. And he says each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman have sexual relations with her own husband. And we should not be embarrassed here or afraid to talk about the stimulation and the sensual desires that are enjoyed and satisfied. It is not as if God designed the two sexes, right, husband, wife, and then turned away, right? And he doesn't know how things work, okay? He's the creator of it. He gave it to us as a gift, to, for us to give to one another as a gift, right? Marriage and marital intimacy is his idea. And it is, it is within the covenant of marriage that we will fulfill and enjoy one another's sexual appetite. And so that is one reason, right, we see a purpose for marriage provides sexual release. The second point, moving to verse 3, a purpose for marriage is to fulfill our sexual duties. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, it says there in verse 3, and likewise a wife to her husband. Again, 
kind of seems like a low view of a purpose for marriage. Fulfill your duty. Right? It seems kind of like a very, an unromantic, passionless view. Fulfill your obligations. Yet properly understood, fulfilling my marital duties, not just sexually even, but all of them requires, I would argue, I think scripture, it's clear, requires commitment and passion and romance to fulfill all the things that God puts in front of the spouse, right? Those marital duties requires a commitment. It requires pursuit. And I would say even romance. I marry, right, we marry because we want to bind ourselves to these blessed duties and responsibility because it brings us joy to serve and spoil men. It ought to bring us joy to serve and spoil our bride as we are able. And we should be held accountable to passionately perform the duties that we have voluntarily bound ourselves to when we said, I do, right? Right? You see, you have an obligation and a duty to cherish your bride. The obligation doesn't kill the joy or the passion or decrease the affection. In fact, I would argue that properly understood before God, it increases, men, it increases our attentiveness and care to our spouse's wants and desires and needs. And connected to the second point is the third point, that there is this mutual surrender of rights. It says there, verse 4, a wife does not have right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. In this time period, it would be well understood that a wife belonged to her husband, all right? So when Paul says, verse 4, that a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does, there was nothing earth-shattering about that, right? Now, let's pause for a moment, right? Not that I needed to pause you. I think of the women in the room right now. To our own cultural sensibilities, this statement causes all types of alarms to go off. What do you mean a wife does not have the right over her own body? My body, my choice, right? And for the woman, this can become very problematic. But for their ears, as this is written then, it wasn't this line that was the earth-shattering line. It was actually the next line. It says, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. I suspect that caused some to leave the church after they got that letter. That's how earth-shattering this was. If you look back, even in the Old Testament, we see examples of a husband's authority over their wife's body, but not the other way around, right? You see, take Abraham even, who's going to give his wife to sleep with King Abimelech, and she goes along with it, right? I, I don't think, I think that's even more so, Just she just felt like she didn't have a choice in that, that that was her duty in that cultural context and how terrible right and you had husbands with many wives even if you look back at the old testament you didn't have wives with many husbands right the man had authority over everyone's body in his household so that even the male and female servants were subject to his sexual appetites it was accepted that a man could go in the pagan world. Okay, you understand. That. It was accepted that a man could go other places to gratify his sexual desires. And no wife had any authority to tell their husband what they can and cannot do with their body. They're living here in Corinth in a very sexually licentious world. And it could be that men in the church that Paul is writing to might think it's okay to gratify their sexual appetites in ways that were acceptable to that society. To which Paul comes along here in our text and says very clearly that men no longer have the authority over their sex life. Wow. Right? He says, saying the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I like how one commentator summarizes this he says this clearly pointed out to 
a radical and unprecedented restriction on the husband's sexual freedom. Saying to the husbands, essentially, you think you own it all, but let's get it straight here. Your body is not your property, it's your wife's. Wow. Your wife has authority over your sex life. And today, you know, honestly, I've seen that come out this way, and I've seen men resist it, but I think that can come out this way when a wife says, hey, I don't want you watching that. I don't want you to look at that. And I would say that is a right of the wife because your sexual desires don't belong to you. They belong to your wife. So she finds herself in a situation where she feels the need to tell you, hey, let's not watch that or don't watch that. You ought to be quick to come her way. See, it clarifies that intimacy, the intimacy is only for his wife, no one else. Additionally, it clarifies that he has a marital duty to please his wife sexually. It was interesting reading various guidelines back then calling on men to draw near to their wife on a regular basis to care for her and please her in this way. It seems there was a problem back then with lack of attention that a husband would give his wife sexually speaking. And then it seemed, right, it seems as you're reading information back then that a wife longed for her husband to see his body as a gift to her and only to her. So text, or Paul is addressing this, and the text is clear that the wife has to give, has a gift to give. The text is clear that a husband has a gift to give, and both are required to give. They have an obligation, as it says here, a marital duty. And depending on your situation, maybe the spouse, right, maybe... You may be the spouse that says, I'm trying to give, but they don't want it. Or, I'm wanting, but they won't give it. And in this, it's very important that we see the mutuality here. There is a mutual surrender of rights. Women, when you married, you said, my body is his. This is part of the oneness that God designed for marriage. Men. When you married, you said, my body is hers. And one of the beauties of marriage is that this is a mutual voluntarily, voluntary surrender of rights. Right? My wife chooses this. I chose this. Right? You can't surrender your spouse's rights. They make that decision. It's their choice. It's similar to what we see in the Song of Solomon. The woman says of her man in chapter 2, verse 16, I am my beloved and he is mine. And in this we see this mutual mutuality, right? We see this is a mutual belonging. She says, he is mine. He is not, essentially she's saying, he is not anyone else's and then She goes on to say, and I am his. And that is the attitude of this passage here in 1 Corinthians 7. This is a mutual sexual intimacy that is highlighted. I am his and I will give myself to him. And he is mine, as we see in the Song of Songs. And he is mine and I, right, and he will give himself to me. As you read Song of Solomon, she says, she goes on to say, and you probably some of you are familiar with this, his banner over me is love, right? And I key in on this, men. Listen to her. How does she sound? She feels safe. She feels secure. And his desire for her excites her. It doesn't cause her fear, Right? Right, the fulfilling of the duties, the surrendering of the body is a voluntary act of service and surrender. It's voluntary. Very important. As we now move into the final point, it is a gift to give, 
not a weapon to rob. It says, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right, what a gift we have to give in this area of intimacy. As God has designed sexual intimacy, both husband and wife participate. That's what we see, right? Both husband and wife participate in the gift giving. It is not one-sided. It does not say, husbands, do not deprive your wife. And it does not say, wife, do not deprive your husband. It says, do not deprive one another, which assumes that the intimacy is good. And one, whether it be the husband or the wife, would feel deprived if it was not given. You see? That's something to, to, we have to process there. Just that in and of itself. The assumption, right? That if, if it was withheld, the assumption that either one would feel deprived. Right? That suggests that they want it and that it's good. And they experience it as good. Right? The intimacy they are to know and experience is to be mutually enjoyable and desirable. Even though the couple will not always experience that desire at the same level or in the same way or on the same occasion, it is intended to be a gift from both to both. We could ask the question, men, are you approaching it to serve her? So that she experience it, experiences it as a gift? Or are you robbing her of that by demanding and making it a chore for her? Now there are other texts like in Song of Solomon that speak more intensely and romantically as to the joys and pleasures that can be experienced by both the husband and the wife in marriage. Of course, it's much easier to think of my wife's body being a gift to me than my body being a gift to her. Amen? Right? You guys, you're uncomfortable and scared to laugh right now. <laughs> but that's okay. We can joke about things. But what I have learned, the degree in which we enjoy each other physically... I'm talking about husband and wife. The degree to which a husband and wife enjoy each other physically comes from places beyond the physical. Okay? And having a husband that honors and cherishes, men, please listen. Having a husband that honors and cherishes and treasures and ministers and is spiritually strong and maturing and can shoulder the storms of life and is there in that way for their spouse, those are the types of muscles that a woman wants to grab hold of. Are you walking? Both spouses, you can ask this, both the husband and wife, ask this. Are you walking in the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit? This posture towards your spouse, you see, is the recipe for passionate, intimate embrace. Walking in the Spirit, right? It is from this place that you experience the mutual pleasure of one another gifts as God has intended them. But there is another way, as we see here in this passage, that your body is a gift to your spouse. And that is highlighted here in verse 4. It's a gift for their sanctification. It says, do not deprive one another except for a time and devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A husband and, as a wife and as a husband, you move toward your, that's what, what this text is saying, that you move towards one another physically so they won't sin. I've heard both husbands and wives say the reason they fell into sexual sin, the reason they had the affair, the reason they started looking at pornography or started a chatting relationship online with an old high school boyfriend is because their husband or their wife isn't attentive to them physically. 
Now, now, physical intimacy can be very broad, and I think it's worthy to be applied here, right? I could go through, you could go through, right? Well, for me, I just think of my own experience, applying this very broadly, right? And, and looking at other ways that we could move towards our spouse, right? And, and caring for them and cherishing them and caring for them physically and not depriving those physical longings, right? And I think for me, I could go through my entire marriage and not hold my wife's hand. You said, that's terrible. I know. But I don't live there, right? I could go through my entire marriage and, and not snuggle with her, right? I'm not a snuggler, right? Uh, and, and here's my point. My point is this, Right? The physical intimacy, even looking at more broadly, right, hand-holding, snuggling. There's ways we cultivate, like I recognize as a husband that even in those things, those areas of physical intimacy, right, that I need to cultivate a desire to do those things in order to serve our spouse, right? Right? You don't want, men, you don't want your spouse to feel they need to go somewhere else to be gratified, even in those more broad categories. Right? We don't want the treatment of our spouse to exasperate them. You know, I, I take it a step further. Uh, when I die and she remarries, there you go, you lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> It's really intense, and the fact that I'm trying to get through this, you know, so we're not here at 1 o'clock, all right? When I die and she remarries, I see it happening this way, okay? I've dealt with it, but I don't want her new husband's good treatment of her to make her wish she never married me, right? And and like, I'm serious about that. I'm serious. Meaning, I don't want her to think, so this is how a Christian husband is to treat his wife. I mean, I'm being serious right now. How sad. How sad would that be? Like, I don't want her to feel deprived now, and I don't want her to feel deprived later. In caring for her and moving toward her, I help her not, what this text says, men, women, we help our spouse not be tempted towards this end. And specifically, this verse is telling us when we give our body to our spouse, it is a way to help them not be tempted because of their lack of self-control. And one of the functions, right, of the church is to help each other, right, as a basic function as a brother and sisters in Christ. It's to help each other walk in holiness, right? Right, Ephesians 5, we are told there to love Husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. And he did this. Why did he do this? To present the church to himself as a radiant, as radiant, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way it says, husbands, this is how you're supposed to love your wife. You see, husbands, you have a responsibility to lead out in a way that you give in the, to lead out in in the way that this text is calling you to, to give yourselves to your spouse. That's what you're called, husbands, to do, to give yourselves to your spouse, right? Your aim in your married relationship, husband, is not to take from her, but to give and sacrifice for her. In order to present her radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. And that means you don't exasperate her, but you help her in her spiritual journey to follow Christ and not get entrapped by sin. As followers of Jesus, we try to help people not sin. And it's very practically, right? This is a way you can help your spouse not fall into sexual sin satisfy their sexual desires to willingly give your body to your spouse in this way helps your spouse keep from sinning against God now we can look at that and say that's messed up right 
if they went and satisfied their sexual desires somewhere else just because I refused to have sex with them, that would be messed up, to which the church would agree, I would agree. But we also have a directive to do our part to help our spouse not sin against God. And we understand, just to be clear, this principle in other areas. We can exasperate someone to sin, right? It tells us a father can exasperate their children in the way that they treat them and tempt the children to not honor the father. A woman can dress in a way that would make it difficult for a man to guard his eyes and heart, not to lust. And we call in that instance for modesty, right? We abstain. Romans 14 talks about we abstain from eating certain things if we believe it would cause a brother or sister to, to stumble, right? And so even this is like one of those things. It is noble, good, pure, loving thing to satisfy your spouse with your body so as to help them not be tempted by Satan because of their lack of self-control. It's a gracious thing to do. In this way, your body serves your spouse as a gift for their spiritual good. Wow. Right? That, that in my opinion, ought to, and I think does, take marital intimacy to another level. Its purpose, like we said earlier, beyond the physical it's beyond caring for your spouse's physical well-being to caring for their spiritual well-being. Now on the other end of that, if you commit adultery against your spouse and your response when confronted, or, or you uh, look at pornography and your response when confronted is, well, they have deprived me of intimacy for X number of days. Well, I want to be clear again. This is not an excuse. This text is not an excuse for your sin. And you would be called to repent for your serious lack of self-control. And you would be held accountable for that serious lack of self-control. Right? It's no excuse to sin. What is given here is a way for spouses to help each other not sin. It's not a reason to sin. Understood? Understood. We have to understand that. So don't abuse this passage. Now you'll be tempted to abuse it if you're living in malice and evil and not Feeding, like it says in verse 5, chapter 8, on sincere and pure devotion in your faith. You're tempted to do the opposite of what we just said. Know that you're not acting like Christ if you choose to do that. I've heard husbands say the reason they look at pornography is because their wife wasn't sleeping with them. I've heard that. And you know, I want to say to that, just because it's common, I think, sadly, that your sin has made you stupid. And that, that's just the theological truth. I, I'm not trying to be mean. It's just clear. That's just what sin does. It makes us stupid. It's called the noetic view of sin. Sin makes you stupid. And if that's your conclusion, your sin has made you stupid. Again, what is given here is a way for our spouses to help each other not sin, not a reason to sin. And I think it's important to say what it means to not deprive. I think some men in particular, and here... I just pray again, you'll receive, be able to receive this. I think this is something we need to hear. Because there's a broad category of people in this room right here. In terms of how they've experienced intimacy in their home. And I think God's word helps try to direct us in how to respond and care in these instances. What does it mean to not deprive? I think some men in particular believe this means a wife cannot say no. And that, I believe, would be a manipulative way for a man to use this text. Or for a wife to use it that way. So what does deprive mean? Well, just here's a definition. To cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit, dishonest, unwillful, improper means. Right? Deprive can be translated from the Greek as rob, steal, defraud. So to deprive means that you are taking something from your spouse that is rightfully theirs, as we have already established in the text. Your body is theirs. So to deprive your spouse of what is theirs is to rob them of enjoying what God has given. But, of course, this still doesn't answer the question, can a spouse say no to sex? 
And the text actually gives one example of when they can say no, and that is if they agree for a time to fast from sexual intimacy so as to devote themselves to prayer. And it's clear that this should be for a specified amount of time, and they should come back together again. The agreement here is key. The withholding of marital intimacy is is the decision in this instance is spiritually mutual decision to fast and prayer. One thing we see here is that God did not design the marriage, though, to be a place of celibacy. God did not design the marriage to be a place of abstinence, but a unique relationship of oneness at every level. And this bond is cultivated through regular expressions of marital intimacy. The moving into this question of can a spouse say no, though, I think it's clear that a spouse could say no to sex on a given day and not be depriving their spouse. Perhaps you're sick or you're tired. That would be a common reason to say no. And there certainly would be other reasons why a spouse could say no in a given moment. Perhaps the timing is not good. Perhaps, and here's what I want us to think about, perhaps there's been a lot of fighting and things are not resolved. Or perhaps one spouse says no because they feel that the other has not been treating them well throughout the day. And think about it. Think about that situation. How terrible it would be for a woman if a woman was regularly treated poorly and then her husband attempts to regularly regularly move toward her expecting physical intimacy from her even while they just finished the whole day or weeks withholding from their spouse tenderness and understanding and yet they expect the physical that church that would distort God's desire I think it distorts God's but it also distorts God's desire and intention for their union right but If a spouse can say no, right, I think it's it's important that she in those instances or he in those instances would be allowed to say no and say, hey, hold on. Let's address the distance and marital strife that we've been having. Right, then, then the sexual intimacy can move further down the road of the oneness that God has for them. And I think a a spouse has this responsibility to not just go on in this state pretending everything is okay and sweep things under the rug, right? To do so in these instances, I think you end up creating a false sense of intimacy and oneness, one that God has not intended for your home. And again, what I'm trying to address is men who might use this or be tempted to use this text to preach to their wife whom from their perspective is withholding. And I don't think being told no in a given moment means, husbands, you are deprived in the way that this text is talking about. Be careful. And even if you were, this text isn't saying, well, demand her. No, it's her decision to give. You see, a person needs to check their heart. Are you saying no for selfish reasons? Is saying no robbing your spouse of the gift that God has rightfully given your spouse through marriage? You see, sadly, marital intimacy, the very thing that ought to be an expression of the marital bond, the very thing that ought to be a picture of how God is moving the couple towards the oneness that He has designed for them, it's sad how that can be weaponized and used by either spouse in a way that causes pain, heartache, and frustration. That ought to grieve all of us. Husbands, this text isn't saying, make sure your wife doesn't deprive you. God's word is telling the wife what she ought to do and it's telling the husband what he ought to do. And husbands, you tempt your wife to respond in the flesh when you abuse this text or or other arguments to try and serve your sex interest and not serve your wife. Sex is a gift. And what we see is that a woman or a man could deprive. Now that tells us not to, but the fact is you could, which means a Christian marriage, in a Christian marriage, there is autonomy. 
a freedom here, a decision that each spouse must make before God. I am to decide not to withhold my body. My wife is to decide for herself before God not to withhold her body. And what I'm saying here is let your spouse make the decision that she wants to make or he wants to make and entrust yourself to God. And continue to serve and love them. Right? I can say this to the husbands. You push your wife away and you make things worse. You make things less intimate. Just practically speaking. You push your wife away and you make things worse. You make things less intimate, less fun. When you try to make that decision for her. Right? It's a gift for her to give. And it's a gift for you to give. Now, if you have a good gift-giving relationship in your marriage and sex has been experienced as a gift by both of you, I think asking for the gift could work out well, right? Because you both have experienced it as a gift. But there is a thing that I was taught when I was little and it had nothing to do with sex, but I think it can apply. And that is you don't ask for a gift. That's not how it works. And if you do decide, though, to, to take a shot at asking, you, you make it easy for that person you're asking uh, the gift from. You make it easy for them to either avoid the answer or to say no. Right? Why? Because you want that. The last thing you want to do is pressure somebody to give a gift they don't want to give. Right? You want them to do it free. The free self-giving. Right? Now, if you are younger than five, you don't care about that. <laughs> right? But if you're a man, a Christian man, you care very much about that. You don't want your wife giving under compulsion or manipulation or fear or guilt. I mean, here's my point. If your bedtime intimacy has not been characterized as a mutual gift to her, I'd be careful asking. For it can easily seem self-serving and push her away further still. So move towards her patiently, prayerfully, tender, tenderly. It's interesting, men. As spiritual leaders, when we read this text, it says, and it says, don't deprive, we ought to ask, not for selfish reasons, but before God, how do I lead my wife to not want to deprive me? There's some basic things you could do here. Shower. Okay? We could talk about some more of those very practical things. You might say, well, it doesn't talk about that. She just needs to not deprive. But I would say, no, it does talk about that very clearly, actually. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker partner, showing them honor as the co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see, we can, husbands, lead our wife to not want to deprive us. Not by demanding that they don't or making them feel guilty for not, but by learning how to live with them, as this text here in 1 Peter 3 says, in an understanding way as the weaker vessel, vessel showing her honor as the co-heir of the grace of life. You see, and you can't live with your wife in an understanding way unless you know her. So it requires it requires us to pursue them. It requires us to study them, to know their struggles and their strengths, and to be patient and cherish and care and be tender. We can lead and love our wife in such a way that helps them make room for this type of intimacy, this free self-giving. So I close with this. Husband, wife, model Christ in this. Listen to this directive. Enjoy the sexual release and pleasure. Fulfill your sexual duties. Embrace the mutual surrender of your bodily rights. Don't fear what God has ordained. This is each individual spouse's decision before God. And finally, a reason we are to surrender our body to the others is because it is a gift to be given, not a weapon to rob. Spouse, it's a way for you to serve and protect 
and show each other love. Right? So for the good of your spouse's sanctification, it's a way to help them walk in holiness. So this morning, if you're married, look at yourself. Did you hear that? This morning, if you're married, look at yourself. Examine yourself before God and ask, have you given what He has asked you to give in your marriage? Are you serving? Are you blessing with your body? Or are you robbing from your spouse what God has intended to be given to you as a gift for their sanctification? Remember, this letter is a guide to a church in trouble and this gift that Paul is talking about here in this text will help keep us and the church out of trouble. For the glory of God, will you pray with me? Lord, I couldn't even attempted to talk about such a serious topic and sadly sometimes heart-wrenching topic if your word hadn't spoken to it for our benefit. I would just have to ignore it, it seems. But your word has spoken. And what care is reflected in that? That you care for those who are in relationships where they have found this difficult and impossible. But God, your grace is sufficient. And I ask that your spirit would encourage each one here to meditate on these truths and surrender first themselves to you. God, that that you might work in them healing, perhaps, that's needed in this. That they would reach out for help willing to disclose as is needed to someone else. And God, you would begin to heal all marriages in here that are in need of healing and that you would protect all in here from the sexual sins that our culture tempts us with and that each man and each wife here in this room would find, would find the, the pleasures and the joy of marriage and experiencing those gratifications and that intimacy that you designed, that they would find that right there with their own spouse so that they can continue, God, to experience that oneness and that intimacy as you have designed and intended for them. It's sometimes hard for us, God, to get on that track, and so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, at this time, it's not told you, it, it might be one. We'll get, actually, we'll be at 1230 probably. So but we're excited. Connor, please come up here. We have a baptism this morning. And so Connor is going to come up here and the mic is ready to roll. And you are going to share your testimony. Connor, it's so good to have you up here. Just excited to, to hear your testimony and see you follow Christ in baptism. Go ahead. 